Welcome back to Knowing God with Heart and Mind, the regular visit to the virtual church classroom at Shiloh United Methodist Church in Jasper, Indiana. I'm Pastor Dan, and welcome to episode two of the Mere Christianity book study that we're doing. And uh, that is a a well-known work by Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis. We're going to be doing that for next several episodes in our study. And uh, we invite you to join along with us here in the virtual cyber classroom. You can follow along um, physically as well by joining the Facebook group that we have. It's called Knowing God with Heart and Mind. It's a closed Facebook group. Search for it on the internet and or on the Facebook rather, and then you'll be able to connect with us. And I've even posted a copy of the quadrant that we talked about in the last episode there. So these are all ways to help uh, help you help us join in this great conversation. So we're glad to be here together for another time of study. And uh, we hope that though this is a virtual church classroom, that it won't stop you from being part of one of our real church spaces that are always available and open to you at Shiloh. We'd love to have you join us on Sunday morning or for any of the activities that go on virtually every day at Shiloh. So with that, we'll move on. First thing we do, as always, is offer up a prayer. So let us pray. Almighty God, I want to thank you for these listeners and their faithful commitment to this study. I thank you for for C.S. Lewis for giving us your voice through him and uh, his reasoned approach that gives all of us more faith. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to share this together in this special and unique way. I ask your blessing on all of those who are listening now. Whatever time and space they're in, it doesn't matter because you are timeless and you are outside of our space and time and yet intimately involved with it. So it doesn't matter whether they're listening to this days, weeks, or even years later, Lord, you will hear this prayer that we use to join with them where two or more are gathered in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So my daughter Bethany is here with me, as always, to help me with this study, and uh, we gave you an introduction in the first episode, not only to the book, but uh, more so, really, to to uh, Jack, mm-hmm. to uh, C.S. Lewis, and we kind of laid the groundwork for how he became such a profound influence on generations of Christians. And, uh, and then we started into the book Mere Christianity a little bit. And uh, I mentioned that quadrant in the introduction. We had this quadrant, and we showed you uh, with our words what it looked like. But in case you're still not sure you understand, I did put it in the group uh, on Facebook. So you will see an attachment to the posting of episode one that I put in the comment section with the PDF file of the page that shows the quadrants. So you've got it. Um, say something, Bethany, because I need to cough. <laughs> um, I, I read the introduction so I can answer the question that I didn't know last time because... I skipped the intro thinking he didn't write it. Well, we did leave some of that unanswered, if you (laughs) recall, because we wanted a a little bit um, of homework to be settled this week. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? The questions that 
that we asked last week. Um, we talked about that quadrant, but we had the um, the the part about the gentleman, mm -hmm. and then we had the question about Richard Baxter. So, what'd you find out? Well, I thought the gentleman thing was really, really just quality C.S. Lewis and really entertaining because he was just, like he was just using that to say like. Once upon a time, gentleman was a very specific meaning word. Like, it meant someone who had a coat of arms and owned land was uh -huh. a gentleman. He said, but, like, that's changed over the years, and now, like, we assign gentlemen kind of willy-nilly when somebody is, like, nice and does things that we like. And so he said, basically, because we've assigned so much meaning to the word that shouldn't be it's now a meaningless word, <laughs> which, like I said, I just think is quality C.S. Lewis. Yeah, yeah, um, sounds like his rationale. <laughs> and so then he was saying, the reason he brings that up is because then he goes in, on to say that, like, if we take the word Christian and start giving it meaning that we decide it means, then it, it will become a meaningless word, too. Mm. Um and he was just saying, like, um, that also he thinks, like, that's, it, it should be impossible for us to do that because, like, we shouldn't be able to decide, like, who's doing a good job as a Christian or, like. Yeah. So that was pretty, that was, that was where the gentleman thing came from. And I just, that was, it made me laugh. That's pretty good. Now, um. That's good study. I mean, you know, that that's what some of the folks who are listening are going to basically be working out. And um, the uh, gentleman was used to, to mean one with a coat of arms, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on to, to basically say, today it has come to mean someone who is good, mm -hmm. or more commonly, someone who is nice. So, yeah. if you're nice... You're a gentleman, or I suppose a lady. So then Richard Baxter, that was the other question. Who is Richard Baxter? That was the bonus question from did any, anyone out there in Cyberland get that question answered? I, I hope you did. I didn't. Well, so Richard Baxter, who lived from 1615 to 1691, was a Puritan English clergyman who, during the English Civil War of the 1600s, sought to minimize the differences between and unite Presbyterians and Anglicans and independent nonconformists by focusing on mere Christianity. Mm. So basically, C.S. Lewis is saying, you know, his objective was to, to address the questions of a non-believer about mere Christianity, to separate that from conversations about religious customs yeah. and, and traditional Christianity, which is all over the place. And mm -hmm. they used to use the word dogma to describe that, but I think that uh, that's become a less fashionable word. But um, I find it really interesting because, uh, just as an aside, I'm reading a book right now in anticipation of our trip to Israel. Since this is going to be my fourth trip, I've been diving deeper on other things than what you usually look for when you go for the first time. And uh, 
it's more for my personal benefit mm-hmm. because we're always bringing people who have never been before and I definitely want to help them have the best experience they can have. But I've been reading about crusades. I've been reading mm-hmm. about uh, – so I'm reading a book called The Biography of Jerusalem. It's written by an academic. It's brilliant, but the academic is clearly, if not an atheist, he is basically absolutely incredulous about Christian belief and in particular. And I don't think he realizes how it's betrayed in his commentary because he's giving the stories. Um, and, and on one level, it's just him saying, I'm simply a, a history, historian who's telling you what is historically known and telling you what is not historically known. But he selects rather discriminately which things he wants you to know haven't been verified. You know, I mean, he could, in fact, I find it really interesting that he uses the Bible as a source of history on one level, and he uses it to explain movements of people and activities and things. But then when he gets to one of the beliefs that he clearly has trouble with, he's not being an objective historian. Mm. He's being somebody who's trying to shoot it down. And I think that's really evident in what he's saying. And my point is, is that as long as we're emotional beings, it's always going to be impossible to really get at the truth as a purely objective observer, Mm -hmm. because I don't think there's any such thing as an objective observer. Mm -hmm. Um, I think guys like C.S. Lewis and Lee Strobel, who's sort of a modern guy who took the same task of saying, I'm not a believer, but I'm going to investigate this, if only to disprove it, and then came away believing it. Mm -hmm. And that he has in common with C.S. Lewis. So this guy named Lee Lee Strobel still, you know, he's Mm -hmm. living today, serving churches, doing wonderful work. But the, the point I guess I'm trying to make is, is that if you set out to prove that something in the Bible isn't true, you can do it. You know, if you set out to believe, prove that what people believe is based on something foolish, you can you can do it. Mm-hmm. Partly because religion produces a lot of emotional response. And a lot of dogma or tradition is really just an emotional connection to some tradition that you really like. And that's really meaningful to you, you know. And so what Baxter is doing here uh, that seems like what C.S. Lewis is really grasping a hold of is he's saying, let's focus on the things that are known and agreed upon among us all, Mm -hmm. which is mere Christianity Mm -hmm. or the essential Christianity or the the fundamental Christianity or the basic Christianity and uh yeah it's funny that it's the word mere because you kind of hear that word and think yeah that it's simple or meaning like not meaningful right but it's actually the opposite yeah i mean he's really just he's he's asking us to zero in on the 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 core of the thing Mm -hmm. and and i think that's brilliant and and like i said he's kind of using language of his day and that's why it has that title but uh you know, I, I tend to think that one of the easiest ways to define mere Christianity is by by uh, the creeds. You know, to read the Apostles' Creed is a way to grasp what the fundamental beliefs of a Christian are. I think the Nicene Creed was one of the, one of the times when the early um, sort of Romanized church was actually 
excellent. And I think they had all kinds of flaws and they turned it into, there's a lot of things that happened as a result of, of Constantine's embracing Christianity and making it for a lot of bad things happened as a result of that. But I actually think the councils, especially the, the one that gave us the, Nine, the Nicene Creed, the Council of Nicaea, actually did a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. And Well, they spent an awful long time figuring out what to do and where, like, mm-hmm. and tackling quite a few heresies with it. Mm-hmm. So, I wrote a 10 pa- That was my term paper for medieval I history. I, I had to go digging through the stacks at the library and find, like, real old books because I had to have primary sources. And it was kind of hard to find primary sources on the, the Council of Nicaea. Yeah, probably Oof. they weren't written in English, but... <laughs> no. But but anyway, I just like like sometimes in our church, uh, you know, I'll be talking with somebody about, you know, what what are the fundamental things that ever because it would be really a wonderful world if we could have children who are born into the church, raised in the church, graduate from high school and also graduate from Christian education in the church. If that could be possible, then I could see us having some sort of curriculum. Mm -hmm. And it's progressive, just like in your, your school systems, you know, and in, in your regular, you know, formal education. And we can't do that because we, you know, the kids come and go. Mm-hmm. And they come in at different stages. Their adult parents and friends come in at different stages. So what I've always said is, is that if you want to focus on anything essential, then focus on the Nicene Creed, because at least everybody in the group can learn the basic truths that are spoken in the Nicene Creed and then once they've got that down they can work on other things but mm-hmm. that's always there as a potential um, so so that's that's good stuff um, all right so chapter one mm-hmm. um, book one chapter one the law of human nature mm-hmm. so the question was, and you know, I just realized I forgot my, uh, I brought this book, but I forgot the other book. So anyway, sorry, friends, <laughs> I'm just, just me over here rambling. So, so the basic question was, you know, uh, what are some of the objections that are common in, um, in, in, you know, the, the way people object to Christianity. The, I think you're skipping ahead a little. Uh, what? Chapter one is law of human nature. You're right. That's okay. Well, I told you I forgot something important. Um, in fact... So, do you want to know the first thing I thought when I was reading this chapter the other day? What's that? The first, the first paragraph is all about, like, how people quarrel. And mm-hmm. I'm reading it and going... Oh, yeah, it's like he stepped into my kindergarten classroom for 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, like, all of his examples, like, I was there first. That's my seat. Like, I hear that probably, you know, once every minute or so. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, like, the, all of, like, yeah, just all mm-hmm. of his different little quarrels. I was like, oh, yeah, that's kindergartners. Apparently it's still grownups, too, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah, yeah, so so the law of human nature mm-hmm. appeals to some sort of standard that everybody expects everybody else to know. Right. You know, and, and listen. And it's like an unspoken thing. Like, you just assume people know it, which is. Yeah. 
And, and it's really funny because this is really a universal issue. And, and the irony is, is that it proves there are no universal moral standards among people mm-hmm. um, because this is the universal, the, the one thing that is universal is the dilemma itself. I guess another way to put it is, is it's, it's, like some, it's like someone saying to you, expect the unexpected, you know. Which, which is just ironic because obviously you can't expect the unexpected. Mm-hmm. In the same way, you can't really define a moral imperative that all humans share um, because they don't. It, it's sort of subjective. In, and some people would say it's wrong to kill. But in many, many cultures, and really even in our own society, people don't seem to have much trouble um, deciding to kill if there's what they consider a justifiable reason. And so the whole idea of, of you know, some sort of concrete morality that we all agree on mm-hmm. it, is pretty absurd. And But it makes me think of, um, like, in psychology, there's, there's heuristics. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay. Um, there's heuristics and there's, like, different ones. Like, I was just... I was just Googling to check because it's been a few years since I was in the social psych classroom. But there's like, there's different heuristics. And so there, like there's availability heuristics and everything. But the essential, like the essential thing with heuristics is like, it's this, it's the whole, like we have standards that other people don't like, but that like, there's no communication about it. So they're like mental mistakes that we make because they're not always mistakes. Like, their mental, like, shortcuts. Right. And they usually work, but there's also these, like, the heuristics are, like, that is what happens when your mental shortcuts aren't working because you're making assumptions and you don't even know you're doing it. Like, your brain is just doing it. So, like, if somebody's not driving as well as you think they should be, you're like, oh, well, they're breaking... Oh, they should be pulled over. They're breaking laws and stuff, and they, they may not actually you be breaking... You had to use that example. I'm sorry. Because I really, <laughs> really struggle with that. But but it, but it it's a good example because, like, they might not be breaking any laws. They're just not driving the way you've been taught to drive. They're driving the way they were taught to drive, and they're not necessarily breaking a law. They're just not doing it the way you would choose to do it. And so there's all these hidden standards, and that's... I mean, I mean that's I've joked is. for years that that it's a good thing you don't have to drive to get to heaven because I just don't think I'd make it. <laughs> I'd probably do something that would get me turned around and moving in a different mm-hmm. direction. But, like, there there are all kinds of things that people do that I think are this human nature thing than, and these standards that we think exist that don't. Like, because I know that <laughs> my little sister frustrates me a lot sometimes. Be, and But it's usually just that we're, we, we run on very different wavelengths. And, but I'm, I'm watching what she's doing based, well, and I'm, and I know that I'm watching what she's doing based on my standards for myself and she's not going to meet those same standards and that's not fair to her. And it's something that I strive to do better because I know she's on a totally different wavelength than me, but, but we, I think we all do it and don't necessarily sit down and say like, Oh, I need to be easier. I need to ease up. And we fall into judgment really quickly because we have these ideas of what's right and what's wrong all right so i think they get ingrained really early i think you're right 
So, so let's look at this question. So, so what are some of the different names Lewis says this can or has been called? It's in paragraph three. Laws of nature. The rule or law of right and wrong. Mm -hmm. The law of nature, the law of human nature. Mm -hmm. And so, how's this law of human nature different from the laws of nature then? In the laws of nature, an object can't choose whether to obey the laws or not. Yeah, I mean, I guess. I mean, it, it's, it's, I'm I mean, well, it depends on what you're defining nature as. Well, okay, so the first thing we're doing is identifying Lewis's argument, and yeah. then we can decide whether we agree with it or not. Okay, I'm, I'm, you didn't do anything wrong. I'm just saying, Fine. you know, there is a question that I've always asked myself is, is, you know, does the salmon swim back upstream? all those miles does the bird fly south all those miles because it can't help it you know it because it's just ingrained in its instincts it's just something it's compelled to do because there's no will involved because we from a theological standpoint we don't think of animals as having um the same sort of soul as a human being and and most of the things that animals do can be explained more as instinct than as, you know, decisions of the will. So um, it gets questionable and fuzzy sometimes when your dog does certain things and you're just like, you know, <laughs> but you could also watch a, you know, uh, nature video about uh, wolves and you might decide that there's a lot that what your dog is doing is really just what dogs do. And it, they're treating you like part of the pack or something. So, so I don't want to go off on a tangent. I'm just saying that the basic premise here is that the law of nature is something that the that nature just obeys. It it doesn't choose well, not to obey it. If there's a rogue thing in nature, it's usually an anomaly and it's usually self destructive. You know. Yeah, I was just thinking more along the lines of like nature, as in like, like. Like, more, I guess, like, laws of space and physics and stuff. Right. To me, those are things that are, like, objects and things being acted on that there's zero control. Because I think, like, uh, like you said, an argument could be made that there's some control with the animal. Yeah. Because it is still making, like, it's still, it's different processing than us, but it's still making processing decisions. Right. And they, like, they have neural pathways and stuff that that like things are happening and some animals have been witnessed making tools exactly but, but is that an intellectual thing or is it just well who says that an intellect has anything like yeah i think that that it's not this is maybe a tangent but i don't think it's fair to say that intellect is directly linked to soul right i think there's because i I believe that there are lots, there's so much evidence in the world that there are highly intelligent animals all over the world and in all species. But, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have soul. And that's what I mean. Like, I think, 
highly intelligent animals can still like they have this the neural capacity to to possibly make certain decisions so that's why i was saying like what do you mean by nature okay okay so so i get where you're coming from so what is c.s lewis saying is the big difference between laws of nature versus laws of human nature or or the law of human nature then well i think there's will yeah it's a choice then it's and i still think like and that's why i was arguing the animal thing because i still think that they they potentially could be having choice behaviors i just think that their choice behaviors are operating at a totally different capacity than humans because our choice behaviors are driven by emotion and soul and i don't think animal ones are you know their their choice behaviors are driven by survival even if they're not choosing what you know if the salmon's not choosing to swim back upstream it's still doing it out of some kind of survival instinct or you know what i mean so despite what we might see in an animated movie or something we're probably not going to see a salmon staying behind just because he felt like it yeah you know right i don't know why we have to do that that seems a bunny's not going to leave the farm and go to the big city to become a police officer because (laughs) she feels like that's her calling i just i just really love that movie (laughs) (laughs) which i'm not going to name because i could get in trouble i did a bethany and and made a gesture that bumped the microphone it's usually her that so if you ever hear the microphone get bumped it's usually her hands that did it yeah we were joking about that the other day (laughs) All right, so so then now this is hint. This is in paragraph five. Why in the past have people called this rule of right and wrong the law of nature? Then why why was why was it attributed to human? You know that because according to Lewis, it says that they thought everyone knew it by nature, and it wasn't something that was taught. Right. Right. Which, to me, is like falls right in line with like nature versus nurture yeah are you born knowing right from wrong or is it something that you learn based on who's raising you yeah i get that it's like kind of like that story i was just telling the other day about when i was in israel and we came running in out of the rain and we went in the exit door and this israeli person was really put out with me yes because I entered a door that clearly said exit on it in Hebrew. <laughs> Don't ever bring him into any Walmart anywhere. You know. Because everybody yeah. walks in the exit. And and he was really irritated with me. And he looked at the sign and looked at me like, Don't you see what that says? Mm-hmm. And And I thought, how interesting. You know, this is really a good example of what we're talking about here. Because... Because the man was assuming that everybody in his country read that language fluidly like he did. And, and what's ironic is he was in a tourist site where it was clear that tourists were visiting. So that was what's kind of funny is that is it, you could even say that, that, that in some communities and in some sects, I always have trouble saying that word, sect, mm-hmm. and in certain you know environments there are sort of known rules and everything but but honestly you know in the world we're living in and really have always lived in um everybody's standards are different in some particular way and and to put it in a more kind of like you know one of the things that we're studying at church in addition to all of this is 
It's just how to be a more welcoming church, how to be a more, um, uh, you know, friendly to people who may come in with radically different expectations. And one of the things that churches are always guilty of, and not not for any not not necessarily as a fault or as a negative thing, but but one of the things that immediately happens after a group of people have been doing the same thing together the same way for certain number of years on the same day, you know, is there are a lot of known rules that nobody says to mm-hmm. the newcomer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when somebody says, well, we're going to go down to the Family Life Center, that doesn't really mean anything to the person who's never been there before because they don't know what that is. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we put signs up and things, but, but you know, um, it's just kind of like you and I have our sort of affection for words and and so as a preacher, I always try to make sure that if I use a word that I'm not sure everyone will understand, I always parenthetically say another word. Mm-hmm. I always give a, a cheaper synonym, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, and and I don't do that out of condescension. I do it out of respect. I I do it because I love the people I'm talking to, and I don't want them to be put off or troubled by my words. But I also value the words that I choose in the in my original process. Mm-hmm. Because they mean something to me. And so so that we're not using two different languages, I combine the two. Yeah. And and ho- hopefully maybe even elevate people a little bit as long as I do it with without being disrespectful and I don't feel bad about it. So so anyway. Well, so I thought it was interesting, though, because this was one of the more, the, the more interesting paragraphs, I thought, because he said that, like, he didn't think that people were wrong about this that like there's a basic human decency and the example he uses is like he almost felt like like they had to be right because otherwise world war ii was like what was the point right and and he like he said like how could we justify fighting them and saying that we were right and they were wrong if they had no concept of right and wrong Mm-hmm. because then it'd be like blaming them for the color of their hair. Like they have no, so yeah. he was saying like, you, like you almost need it to be right because otherwise when you go to war against evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, like you have to believe that, you know, and, and, and all combatants start by convincing their soldiers that the enemy is evil mm-hmm. and that you're vanquishing evil. Mm-hmm. And so all wars are fought over ideologies but they're usually based in something a lot more instinctive, and that's survival. Um, one nation doesn't take over its neighbor unless it feels threatened in some way and or needs something that the neighbor's got that they won't get, they think, like without that's taking more often it. The case. You know, and then so, so you know, you, you used World War II as an example, and, and Lewis fought in World War I. And so he had plenty of time to think this over. And basically, you know, um, the Japanese and the Germans threatened our existence. That was what we were fighting for. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if you want to achieve the goals of the generals and the politicians, then you have to be motivated. And that comes from the generals and politicians in the form of, vilifying the enemy it's not enough to say they're threatening our survival Mm -hmm. but once you once you've removed that threat to your survival 
then what's your motivation for driving the enemy all into the ground and beating them into complete submission? Um, because, you know, basically most people are con content with protecting what they love and then live and let live, you mm -hmm. know, and, and on the national stage that just doesn't work. So, so there's an introduced morality that comes into it. And of course, propaganda becomes incredibly, you know, uh, vicious, mm -hmm. but so, so it kind of goes along then, uh, because the next question is on what basis have some denied that the law of human nature is known to all men? And that's like paragraph six. Well, yeah, he, it's, it's a very short paragraph. He just says like, it might be unsound because different civilizations and different ages have had very different moralities. Yeah. I'm like, which is true. Like there are, <laughs> there are plenty like there are plenty of things that were completely acceptable and even considered moral in the middle ages that we would gasp at well, now I'll, I'll bring it even closer you're reading a book right now that i recommend well to yeah you. <laughs> and it's uh it's called unbroken and it's the story of louis zamperini mm -hmm. and he's a prisoner of war in japan and their whole rationale towards prisoners was that that they were lower than dirt because they survived. But I will counter argue that and say that one of the things that I'm noticing as I'm reading is that even though that's like the general consensus of like the overall army, it feels like every place that he is, there are some, there are like always one to some handful of guards who seem like they do not agree at all because oh, sure. they're fine. Like, so, so my counter argument is like, yeah, that might be the overarching thing, but there's still people in those civilizations and ages that are saying, whoa, so whoa, 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 it's whoa. It's not necessarily like, a cultural thing, but it's definitely an ideology. Yeah. It, I mean, it's an ideology, but they're like, it's not an ingrained morality again. Right. Because, Otherwise, there wouldn't be a handful of friendly guards who are like, hey, you guys need to watch out. They're getting ready to cut off your ration supply. Or like, hey, here's a box full of rice. Sneak it into your bear. Like, like there wouldn't be people do, doing inherently good things. That's cool. So, you know how, I mean? so yeah. So how does C.S. Lewis refute the argument then that... Uh, denying the human nature or the law of human nature so so his refutation of this comes in two different ways um he talks about how some moralities are never that he said different moralities were never totally different yeah yeah, I, I mean, he talks about how, like, there's plenty of civilizations where it seems like they're different, but if you really get to the nitty-gritty, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then he says that deniers always go back on their denials. <laughs> Throughout history, there have absolutely been no absolutes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which, which is a typically C.S. Lewis witticism. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he's, he's, they, sooner or later, they always go back on it. Um, you could say this is an absolute law, but then at some point you'll find a reason to violate it. And I, yeah, I would like use, he gave an example about treaties. He said, like, a country may say, a country's leaders may say, treaties don't matter, they're meaningless. But then 
they'll counter like they'll counter themselves by arguing about how unfair a particular treaty that they want to break is. Right. And like, well, if it doesn't matter, then why are you arguing that it's unfair? <laughs> like, I'll use myself as a guinea pig here and tell you that you know my fundamental belief about capital punishment and abortion and euthanasia comes down to life is precious, life is sacred, it should not be taken. Therefore, I, in general, don't approve of abortion, don't approve of euthanasia, and don't approve of capital punishment. However, mm -hmm. I'd be the first to say that if your lovely mother was, uh, her life was at stake, that I might be willing to make an exception. I would be the first to say uh, in certain cases where you know, there's rape and incest or whatever, that there may be justification. I would be the first to say that some people linger on the brink of death in misery and all because they didn't have a DNR, you know. I would say that there are some people who are so evil and so animal-like in their violence that they may not necessarily need to be formally put to death in, in a gas chamber and a, a lethal injection or whatever. But you know what? If a police officer catches them in the midst of some horrid act of violence and to save his own life and to save another life, he shoots this person and kills them, that I'm not sure that I'd have any real problem with that. So what I'm saying is that I'm willing to admit that even though I have this sort of high moral ground that I want to stand on regarding the sanctity of life, it's not absolute because there aren't any absolutes. So what I've come up I with, I guess that's proof that it's that like you, obviously those decisions have to be made by people all the time, but it's also proof. I think that it's really not our job. Yeah. And, and it shouldn't be. There's a, there, like, there's good reason for that not to be our job. Well, and because it's so. Yeah. Gray. And, and so, so basically, you know, we all just do the best we can. The argument that I've always given is, is so if I really could state what my position on these things is, and, and I know I'm putting this out in the public, so I'm liable to get some disagreement, but, but my position on these things might be uh, controversial. But I think if I had to say anything is I'm always a little frightened of government executing that sort of power. In other words, it, it would be one thing to make in a general decision that abortion is not legal, that euthanasia is not legal, uh, that institutional death, you know, is, is not desirable. On the other hand, I would want someone like a judge or somebody to be able to give permission under certain circumstances, you know, that, that in other words, if, and, and folks, listen, uh, some of you, I can picture you, and and you got to understand much of what I do. Some in my, especially in my little sort of thought exercises, is I pray. I like to present an ideal. I know that in a real, I, a real world, that the ideal doesn't seem achievable. But if I could have the perfect world, then nobody would be killed in some way or another. You know, at the expense of the taxpayers and under the authority of some government that 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 there would be times when death was an appropriate response to a situation but those would be rare and they would be governed by wisdom and and you know careful 
decision-making as opposed to institutional policy. So, so what I'm really driving at is, is that, you know, even though I don't think that Texas is just one step away from being, you know, the Nazi Holocaust because they have, uh, you know, frequent executions, I do think that it doesn't take long when things get out of control for an established policy to turn a little bit rogue and wild and dangerous and suddenly we're executing people who aren't guilty of anything. And so all I'm saying, and, and so some of you know that I've been pretty conservative about some hot topics lately. So now you get to hear me being a little liberal because I think a centrist is somebody who can look at it both sides and see merit on both sides and <clears throat> sometimes lean hard to the right because that's obviously the best thing to do, but sometimes lean to the left and a lot of times just sort of ride the fence. And, and that that bugs the crud out of extremists mm-hmm. because they want you to be all in like them. But if you're really a thinking person, you should be conflicted a lot of the time. Yeah. And that's why we need God and God's wisdom and the Holy Spirit. And yeah. It's a personal opinion. I've probably stirred some people up. But really, we're coming back to the point that, that – um, C.S. Lewis is making here, which is, is that there are absolutely no absolutes. And so even though we might like it better that way because it's just easier, mm-hmm. we don't have that luxury. So uh, the last question then is agreeing that right and wrong are real or objective mm-hmm. and not merely a matter of taste, preference, or opinion. What is the next point Lewis makes about our human law of nature? And that's in paragraphs 9 and 10. For one thing, he says none of us really keep the law of human nature. (laughs) I was just about to read it because it's so Lewis and it's so funny. Read it. It says... None of us are really keeping the law of nature. If there are any exceptions among you, I apologize to them. They had much better read some other book for nothing I'm going to say concerns them. <laughs> it's so good. That that is the that is just his wit at its as sharpest. Yeah. Yeah. It's just it just cracks me up. Yeah, so I mean, like, you know, yeah, like none of us are going to be perfectly able to discern right and wrong and I think it's because it's it's wiggly. And keep in mind that this is C.S. Lewis, a former atheist, mm-hmm. not trying to convince you of what he's always believed, but he's trying to share with you his intellectual reasoning process that brought him around to belief. Mm-hmm. And doesn't mean that his answers are going to bring you around to belief if you don't want to believe it. But but what he's saying, you know, is, is you, you know... Uh, you you know you can't really keep the law of human nature, and if you have, well, good for you. You know, um, I believe that goes to something I've been talking about lately with regard to certain other highly visible events in the world these days. It's just to say that that there are basically people who are convinced of their own righteousness, and they base their legalism or their authoritarian approach to those who disagree with them on their own sense of righteousness. And Mm -hmm. I think I would rather go with the Apostle Paul and say, 
there's only one righteousness and it's Jesus's righteousness. And therefore, I can't claim that I know whether you're right or wrong because I feel I am right or wrong. I can only claim that I was wrong until Jesus made me right. Mm -hmm. And his righteousness is the answer. Yeah. So I've been thinking about that a lot lately. So that's just sort of C.S. Lewis saying it in a much funnier and more eloquent way than me. But I like it. So what's his summary then, um, you know, to this to this whole thing about right and wrong? Well, I mean, like, as he's ending the chapter, he just talks about how, like, he's not, like, he's not trying to know, like, to act like he knows anything about morality more than anybody else. He's just trying to point out that, like, no one is doing it perfectly and that we've we have failed to always be morally high mm-hmm. and that, and that there's reasonable excuses, you know, like the, one of the examples he gives is like that time you were really unfair to your children and yelled at them was when you were tired. Mm-hmm. And, and like, um, he gives some other examples like that. And it's just, I think he's just trying to point out that like, we believe in the law of nature. We believe in right and wrong and and I guess he's getting he wants to get at the why mm-hmm. um, so yeah and so so I would summarize his and your summary by saying that that you know he's he says that humans are haunted by this curious idea of how they ought to behave mm-hmm. and Basically, what he's saying is, is that the the premise that you have to begin with in order to explore mere Christianity is that you have to be willing to look hard at yourself and you have to be willing to evaluate yourself honestly. And I remember sitting here saying that in that first episode mm-hmm. with you, that this was going to be a tough study if you took the, the courage to really look hard at yourself um, it's easy to judge other people's behavior in a manner of speaking. It's me driving through Jasper and griping about the way other people drive, knowing somewhere in the back of my mind that they're probably just as frustrated with my driving, but I have a natural tendency to think that my driving is superior to theirs, you know? And, and so really I have to own that. I have to be willing to, to accept that that's a kind of vanity. Mm-hmm. And yet it's also just a, a, just sort of that, you know, um, what'd you call it? You said, uh, uh, learned or, uh, you just said it a minute ago. It's a great phrase. Just the difference between a culture that, or, a you know, in internal nature versus, Nurture versus nature. Oh, yeah. Nature versus nurture. Yeah. That's what you said. Mm -hmm. Nature versus nurture. And an awful lot of that self-righteousness is nurtured. And it starts with us when we're kids and we just assume that our parents are right about everything. Or at least that they have the absolute final word on what's right, even if I don't agree with it. Well, and there's another concept in psychology that I feel like goes right along with this law of nature thing. Um there's this whole idea of like whether or not people have and apply this to other people, an internal locus of control or an external locus of control. And so like, we all think we have an internal, like, well, and like (laughs) we tend to just believe that like we have an internal locus of control. And so like my favorite example is 
if you're driving down the road and you start driving erratically because there's a bee in your car, you know there's a bee in your car. And you're like, well, they, they'll they understand, the, the outside world will understand because I can't help it. I'm trying to get this bee out of my car so it doesn't steam me, so I'm driving really crazy. Versus if you're driving down the road and you see someone else driving really erratically and freaking, like, they're all over the road freaking out, you're going to go, wow, look at that really stupid person doesn't know how to drive. <laughs> so you you place an external focus on them, but an internal focus on yourself. And I think that has a lot to do with this law of nature, too. We tend to, like do a lot of like a lot less self blaming. Mm-hmm. We, we can apply reasons to what's happening. So like, and I said it opposite. I just realized I said it opposite. So we're putting an internal locus of control on that person because we're saying that there's something wrong with them yeah. as a person versus we know that there's an external force acting on us. So there's nothing wrong with us. Wow. And, but we'll say like, and we do it all the time, like, and that's why I love the bee example, because it's true, like, you see someone driving down the road crazy, and maybe they're flying down the road because they're, like, they're rushing to the hospital with someone in the car who's, like, gushing blood. I followed someone for several miles last night on my way home from church in the dark, and they drove with their left wheel right on the center line, and they drove kind of slowly. Mm-hmm. And it and and you know what my first thought was? It was judgmental. This right. guy's this guy's drunk. Yeah. And he's trying to keep it right on that line because it's right there. And then I started thinking, or this could be somebody like my own parents who don't like to drive at night because their eyesight doesn't right. really work well at night. And one way you can be sure that you're going where you mean to be going is you keep that yellow line right in front of your face. Because mm-hmm. this is what this guy was doing. He was he was holding the steering wheel over the yellow line. Right. And when he got to a place where there was a turning lane, could have been a she, got to a place where there was a turning lane or something, they got they slowed down because it was like You gotta well, figure I out gotta figure yeah. out where I'm going. And so I there was there was some and I bet as soon as you started thinking that way, you were a lot less impatient and yeah. frustrated because you because you assigned that external right. circumstance. Yeah. And that's like and that's what people are supposed to do. But be it's it's a heuristic. Yep. We we tend to just automatically go to, well, look at this idiot who's making me late for work, who's causing like and, and we make it about ourselves. Yeah. And. And it's a really tricky thing to do, but I think it has a lot to do with this morality thing because we, like, we're assigning morality to that person. We're calling them dumb and wrong when in reality it might be something like that where they're having trouble seeing and they're just trying to safely get home. All right. Yeah. Okay. So that wraps it up for book one, episode, uh, or chapter one and episode two. Um, it's funny. I've had, I've got, Two or three, no, I've got about five online classes I'm running right now, if you count this one. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to keep track (laughs) sometimes. Um, (laughs) It really is hard to keep track. And because they all sort of start with an introduction, they're almost always episode one, lesson one. Yeah. And then episode two, lesson two, chapter one. And so they're always out of sync with each other because of the introduction, and we're that we're here again. Yeah. So so right now we're going to wrap up this uh, second episode of the C.S. Lewis Mere Christianity Study, and we've just finished looking at chapter one of book one, 
And so that means in episode three, the next time we record with you, it will be book one, chapter two, and it will be about right and wrong as a clue to the meaning of the universe. So it's titled Some Objections. Some Objections. So read up, my friends. I hope you're enjoying it. Um, I think this study, more than anything we've done up to this point, really requires you to get involved with the online group. Now, I understand you don't have to, and I understand that you can talk with your beloved. Do that, but you may find it useful to visit the Knowing God with Heart and Mind Facebook group, and I recommend it. So um, you give that, a, give that some consideration. And uh, with that, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Do you have any final thoughts on this episode? You, you've really given us some good stuff here. This kind of plays to your education, yeah. too. So this is, this is really like you're a C.S. Lewis fan. You're a Christian woman. You're also a psychology a brain nerd. person who, you know, uh, Bethany's a school counselor, so she's heavy on psychology and so forth. And she deals with little children a lot. And, you know, if you want to understand a lot about human behavior mm-hmm. look at them when they're preschoolers kindergartners it starts really early you know yeah. she's a school counselor but temporarily she's working as a kindergarten teacher and uh, ready to get back into the counselor's office soon <laughs> but but look what you've discovered about yourself you now know that if you had to be in the same room with them all day then you I might wouldn't. choose a different age group so <laughs> but i commend you for that and your patience and wisdom so Friends, we love you, and we appreciate and respect you very much, and we're really honored that you would in, 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 you know, give some of your precious time to this conversation. So with that, I'm just going to say goodbye, and God bless you. Bye.